Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Annalisa Drajic, partner at Sapphire Ventures. While Sapphire was founded in the U.S. since 2020, it's been building out its European presence and now has a team of 10 people based in Europe. Annalisa was made partner in December at the tender young age of 29, making her one of the youngest possible female venture capital partners in Europe. She serves as a board director or observer at Matillon and Adverity and is also involved in Sapphire's investment in Contentful, GitGuardian, Unmind, and Yapili. Annalisa worked on the firm's investment in Kazoo, Currency Cloud, and Wondera. I'm delighted to have Annalisa on the show today. Welcome, Annalisa. Hi, Anita. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Excellent. So Annalisa, venture capital partner at the age of 29, and you probably get this a lot, but I'm really interested in understanding not just your journey to how you've become a partner at such a young age, but really what influenced you to get where you are today? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Thinking back when I was still a university student and thinking about what I wanted to study and what I wanted to do, I went to school at Georgetown University there. I studied science, technology, and international affairs. I was not studying finance and accounting. Really, for me, my passion was all around science and technology and understanding new innovations, how these could be used on a global scale. During that time, I spent two summers in New York interning with Morgan Stanley and their tech investment banking team. And when I think about the early parts of my career, one big decision point for me was upon leaving university, if I went and accepted my offer to become an investment banking analyst and go down that path or do something else. And I actually decided to turn down the offer that I was very fortunate to get from Morgan Stanley. And instead of moving to New York, I moved to San Francisco and I joined LinkedIn and entered the world of tech, which back then was maybe a little bit of a controversial decision. A lot of my friends were questioning why I would not take this coveted investment banking role. And I think for me, it was all about seeking out new challenges and new opportunities to learn. And I felt like joining LinkedIn, which was a rapidly scaling tech company that had elements of consumer internet, the LinkedIn that you and I use, but then also had a really robust enterprise SaaS part of the business as well. When you think about LinkedIn recruiter and then the other tools that they've added on since then, I thought that would be an amazing opportunity to actually be inside a tech company that's rapidly scaling to understand 
really how do companies scale and grow at such such a rapid pace. So that's when I think about my career, one big decision point, and was super fortunate to work with amazing people there and be in a ton of different roles and get exposed to many different areas within LinkedIn. And then I ended up going back to school and I went and got my MBA. And I think for me there, it was all about having a really solid foundation in kind of business topics, be that not just finance and accounting, but marketing and HR and supply chain and strategy and all these other topics that of course you can learn on the job, but I really wanted to get a strong academic foundation as well. And it was during that time where I had the opportunity to join Atomico here in London for a summer internship and was very fortunate to have that summer have the opportunity to also be mentored by really amazing members of the Tomoko team, not only at the partner level, but also on the investment team. And I think there that really opened up my eyes to the world of VC and venture capital. And so after school, then accepted my full-time offer to return to the team, came, spent a few years with Tomoko here in London. And then I think the next big decision point in my career Staying with an established, growing, large VC firm, Atomico, or taking a risk to join still a very large global platform, but to become number two here in London with one of the founding partners, Andreas Weisscom, and have the opportunity to open up the office, build out our team. And I think for me, that what I saw was a new set of challenges that I could really push myself So I think when I think back about all three of those key kind of decision points, turning down investment banking, going to working for LinkedIn, going back to school and entering the world of VC, and then joining almost a startup within Sapphire itself to open up the office, I think the thread for me and the common theme was really all about seeking out new challenges and ways to continue to grow and learn. It sounds like You've always not taken the conventional path, but taken something different where you feel you're going to be stretched and where you're going to learn a lot. Can you remember when you were at LinkedIn, you were in Atomico, were there any learnings or advice that you were given in those roles that you've carried through that have helped you? When I think back to time at LinkedIn, which part of that was on the corporate development team and also my time at Atomico right? I think one of the big learnings that I got was to be open to new industries, new markets, right? I think sometimes sitting in the investor seat, you can get so excited about one space and go super deep and talk to all of the global players, which on one hand is super fun and very valuable. But I think in, in my role, especially now at Sapphire, I'm covering all sectors across B2B, be that infrastructure, business applications, fintech, crypto, and across all of Europe and Israel, that it's important to be open to learning about new sectors and industries that, frankly, you may know nothing about, but there may be a huge opportunity to build a really big business there. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. The other interesting statistic that I've seen is that in European VCs, there's only 12% of partners that are women. I know that you care a lot about this topic and you actively are involved in seeing how you can help with that imbalance. What do you think we need to do to increase that number of women in the European VC scene? 
Yes, I think 12%, 13% of kind of female partners in Europe is, is definitely not enough. I think the number one biggest thing that we can do as an industry is not only recruit more women into VC, but help them thrive. When I think about the team that we built out at Sapphire in London, all of our non-partner investment team is female. And I'm very proud of that fact. It wasn't something that we set out, that we definitely need to have an all-female team. It was more we're trying to hire the best talent for our team. Very fortunate, the first member that we hired was female. And I think that then leads to a snowball effect of more women wanting to join your team. But I think how do we increase the number of female partners in the future is we have to increase the number of female associates, VPs, principals right now, and also help them thrive and grow in their roles. And so I think the role of mentorship and sponsorship be that within one's own firm, but also across the industry is critical. Going to the very top, how do you get more women to even think about the VC path? And is there any specific route that you would recommend? Should people first go and get operator experience before they think about VC? Or should they think about VC like you did as an internship right out of school? What would you recommend? I don't think there's one path to being a VC. I think you see female partners across Europe who have taken very different paths. I think it depends a little bit on the stage of investing that you want to do, be that super early stage versus late stage, because the skill set that you need there is slightly different. Mm -hmm. But I think at the core, it really starts with a curiosity and being super passionate about technology and startups and learning as much as you can. I think no matter if you want to do, be an angel investor all the way up to someone who's investing in private and public markets, like cultivating that curiosity around what's happening within technology and the ecosystem is important. I have actually a friend whose daughter is con considering the VC route, and she was asking me, so I think this would be good advice for her. Okay, let's move on to Sapphire itself. I know that Sapphire Ventures invests in Series B and above. I'm curious to hear from you. There's so much movement now between what seed, Series A, Series B actually mean. So what kind of companies are a good fit for Sapphire? Who should be coming to Sapphire? Yes. So Sapphire, as mentioned, we invest across North America, Europe, and Israel at Series B all the way through IPO. And our specific focus is on B2B companies. That's really majority of our portfolio and where we have a lot of expertise to help companies grow and scale. Now, what is a Series B round? I think if we look even in the last two years, three years, it has changed and it's also been all over the place. I actually wrote an article about this for Sifted about how the round labels are becoming like less meaningful because you have a series B that could be 10 million and then you have a series B that could be 100 million and the businesses are at a very different stage of maturity. For Sapphire, we like to talk about this expansion stage, mm -hmm. which for us is really around after a company have reached product market fit. 
Okay. So when I think about a startup and its journey, you have a technology that then you turn into a product and then you find product market fit. And then you have to move on to go to market fit. And that's the level where then you're really ready for that commercial scale up. Mm -hmm. And so at Sapphire, when we talk about this expansion stage investing on the early side of things, that is when companies have reached a clear product market fit. There's data to support that, as well as have the beginnings of the go-to-market fit, right? Have started to build out their go-to-market team, sales and marketing engine, have a few quarters to demonstrate repeatability and momentum that is working and working efficiently. Because for us, when we're going to invest 50 million or so into a company, of course, a portion of that is going to continue to go in R&D and building out the technology and the product. But also a big chunk of that capital is going to go into the commercial scale up. And we want to understand that there is a clear plan there to be able to use that capital effectively. Is there like an ARR that you use to determine the right fit for Sapphire? We don't have a black and white kind of ARR metric. I would say it tends to when companies have demonstrated that beginnings of a go-to-market fit, they tend to be around 5, 10 million of ARR. But we also have a number of open source companies in our portfolio, for example, where it may be that the ARR threshold or such, not as many data points there, but there's a lot of data points around engagement and usage. So I think for us, there is nuances. We're not just an investor who's looking at a spreadsheet and you're 4.9 ARR on a Friday and 5.1 on a Monday. So then we can have a conversation. That's not our approach at all. It really is getting a sense qualitatively and quantitative around that beginnings of a good go-to-market fit and beginnings of that engine being demonstrated, because that's also where we feel like we can be most helpful to the companies at that stage where they're really ready for that commercial. And Sapphire Ventures also has other arms that invest in earlier stage. Is there an advantage to founders and companies to be part of the Sapphire family from an early stage, or is that not really that important? How do you sort of see the other arms and how they work with Sapphire Ventures? Yeah, so at Sapphire, we have three investment strategies. We have Sapphire Ventures, which is our flagship fund, growth stage, direct investing that we've we've been talking about. We also have Sapphire Partners who invest as an LP into earlier stage GPs or earlier stage VC funds. And then we have a third strategy, which is called Sapphire Sport, which tends to invest earlier stage directly into companies that are more focused on kind of the future of consumerization and more of a vertically focused fund around sports media entertainment related companies. So for us, we have had times where the different strategies have co-invested and have had overlap, but that's not a prerequisite at all for our growth fund. We are looking to back the most ambitious entrepreneurs who are coming out of North America, Europe, and Israel, and who are building what we call companies of consequence. And we're very much excited about that type of company. Tell me a little bit from your own area that you invest in. What are you most excited about? What kind of companies are you seeing in Europe that you're most excited to invest in? From my perspective, and I'm looking at, you know, founders across Europe and Israel, 
I think we're seeing a lot of exciting companies across many different sectors. As mentioned, we invest across three main buckets, which is infrastructure, software, business applications, and fintech. And I think it's super exciting that we see amazing companies growing and scaling across all of those. I think one thing specifically around Europe is also you look and now it's 65 different cities have a unicorn. Yeah. So I think that's also a very exciting opportunity for us to be able to support entrepreneurs who are building these companies of consequence. And they're really doing that from anywhere across the continent. And I think in specifically as well, one area that we're seeing a lot of excitement around the ecosystem is in France and Paris in particular. And I think we're really seeing a, almost a renaissance um, of sorts of tech there. And just two weeks ago was there for the first kind of pan-European women in VC conference, which was an amazing community to be brought together, but then spent a few days running around Paris and seeing entrepreneurs. And I think the ambition level is just next level. And so I think more so than any industry or sector, it really is that increased ambition to build a global leading company that excites me the most. Excellent. And how are you finding these companies? Like you said, Europe is like so many different countries, right? How do you go about sourcing interesting companies from all these other places that are not yet known hubs for startups? I think there's two main ways. One is we're continuously doing deep dives into specific subsectors that we believe have opportunities to build really big companies and we haven't yet made an investment in that area, right? So there it is us doing the research, laying out the market map, who are the key players here, understanding the differences, the nuances, and then going out and speaking to, to those founders. The second is because we invest at Series B, there's many earlier stage VCs across Europe who are investing at pre-seed through Series A as well, that we have strong relationships with. We were just, our team was just in Berlin last week for three days. And we're, of course, meeting with portfolio and companies, but we're also meeting with earlier stage investors there and understanding what's happening in the ecosystem, what are the interesting trends. So I think for us, when it comes to sourcing, it's twofold. It's one, going very deep into specific sectors and industries where we believe that there's opportunities to build a really big business. And the second is building really close collaborative relationship with earlier stage VCs. I interviewed the head of an accelerator once, and she was telling me that Europe has this problem where there are not enough angels or early stage venture funds that are investing in really early, like a few hundred K ideas. And so even though overall the investment in Europe is going up and it's looking healthy, when you look at that very top of the funnel, it's actually not that healthy. From a deal flow to Series B, what you're seeing, has there been any shift or trends that you can speak to? I think from where I'm sitting and what I've seen over the last year to 18 months is we've seen a bunch of new funds get started that are focusing on the earlier stage, as well as more people becoming angel investors. So where I'm sitting when I'm traveling to Copenhagen or Amsterdam, 
or you name it, I'm seeing that there's a, a richer early stage investment community and I see that happening across Europe. I think the biggest funding gap is actually at the growth stage. And it's when companies are reaching series B, series C and need larger checks to be able to continue to scale their business. I think that's where there's the biggest gap for Europe and where us at Sapphire, we were excited to put a team on the ground and invest at that expansion growth stage because we felt like there was opportunity to help European companies with a significant amount of capital to really achieve their dreams of becoming these companies of consequence. Yeah. And I can see that being an advantage because typically what's happened is when you get to that growth expansion stage, especially moving to the US, that's when companies are looking at US VCs. So now you can offer them that plus you have boots on the ground in Europe and can work with them much more closely and locally. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the scaling post series B. That's obviously a, a huge junction for companies. And it's a big difference between how you were operating before where you're sort of figuring out a lot of things you're building and really from series B and above, it's really about scaling and it requires a different mindset, different motion, different people. So I would love to hear from you of the companies that you help in series B, what are the most common challenges you find they face? Yes, I'd say there's three common challenges that I see for companies at that kind of series B, series C, early growth stage level, regardless of like their industry sector business model. And I would say the three are team and talent, the second being customers and go to market, and the third being internationalization. So on the first, on team and talent, I think there, as you had alluded to, the team members that you have at the very early stage of a company could be amazing, but they might not be the right team members to take you to that next stage of scaling. They might not be the right team members to then lead their part of the company when the company is a public company as well. And so I think one of the challenges there is, of course, recruiting amazing executives especially executives who have already experience with scaling. And I think, unfortunately, though, this is starting to change and improve, but just the depth of the talent pool in Europe for those executives who have been on multiple scaling journeys is small. Mm -hmm. And I think also part of that challenge, and this is where I think investors can be really helpful is counseling the CEOs and executive team members of what great looks like. What does a great CFO at Series C look like? Or what does a great CRO at Series D look like? And I think sometimes, and especially first-time CEOs, they don't necessarily know. They just don't have as many data points as you do sitting in the investor seat. So I think that's one area that's always a challenge yeah. that's just recruiting and scaling the team. I think the second one is connected to all the go-to-market scaling challenges as well. And that's, of course, how do you structure and build out your sales and marketing team? 
But I think part of that is also like, how do we go after and win amazing logos and customers? And of course, winning larger deals faster is the dream of all CEOs and CROs out there. And that's why also at Sapphire, we built out part of our portfolio growth team business development team to help specifically with that, which could be tactical customer introductions and helping with closing deals, but it can also be more strategically and thinking about what other go-to-market channels or partnerships you could be setting up. Mm. But really it is taking what you have as a foundation around go-to-market and then building that out and adding to it, be that different go-to-market channels, updating your pricing, updating your RevOps function, all of that is, is always a challenge for companies and something that they need to continuously improve as they scale. And then the third area, as I mentioned, is I think internationalization. And for B2B companies, a vast majority of them want to have a presence in the US market to launch in that market successfully. And I think there, it can also be a challenge of coming from Europe with questions, even as like, where should I set up my US office or who should I recruit to lead that? And how can I get help getting amazing US headquartered companies to start that flywheel for me in the market? And again, that's where Sapphire has built out a team to help with that process because it can be daunting and challenging for entrepreneurs, but especially for for B2B, that's just the US market is just a huge market. And you have one kind of opportunity to make a big splash, a big launch. And I think thankfully, we've been helpful to our portfolio to make that a success. Okay. I want to go a little deeper into each of these three areas. Let's start maybe with the last one, internationalization. What do you see as the biggest mistakes founders make? And what is your advice to people? Like when should they be thinking about internationalization? Yes, I think the biggest mistake that I see founders having is just not having a plan. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that just you can't, it can't happen organically. You need to have a strategy And for companies, as we were mentioning, that can be going to the U.S. and launching and picking your office location and building out a team and having a VP sales or GM for the U.S., but also for other companies, it could be expanding into other parts of Europe and building that out. But I still think no matter if it's a pan-European expansion or it's an international expansion to the U.S., you have to have a plan, you have to have a strategy And you have to start thinking about that six to nine months before you actually start executing that that strategy. Yeah. And what are some of the things you usually recommend to companies that are looking to go to the U.S. specifically? Yes, I think it's always nuanced and company specific. So it's not like you can give them a Google Doc with a playbook and a checklist and be like, do all of these things. I think one important thing is around the culture of the company, for sure. And as you mentioned, this being like a founder led Mm. initiative, I think that's where we've seen the the most success is actually when founders or someone senior in the executive team is having their presence in the U.S., because then I think it gives kind of credibility to that office, help get things going and starting in a really big way, but also provides that connective tissue from a team and culture perspective back to the headquarters. Yeah. And what about in terms of hiring 
like you said, you need a different set of skills for this expansion stage. What are the common mistakes founders make? Again, I think there it's a little bit on on strategy and thinking ahead. A startup and what the skill set needed today is going to look vastly different in 18 months. So I think and how we try to counsel our CEOs and executive teams as well is to be thinking ahead, right? And to be thinking about hiring executives for that next stage, but who can scale for that next stage. So not just someone who has the skill sets to be successful in the role today, but someone who could be successful in that role two years from now as well. Okay. Yeah. And then the second, the last one was on customer and go to market. What are some of the common mistakes you see there? I feel like I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, but I feel like there, it's, it's again, it's having a clear go-to-market strategy and plan for how you're going to grow that. A lot of companies start off with a very strong inbound motion. So they're just getting leads yeah. to them. Your salespeople are just taking down orders. And that is a very efficient and fast way to grow. But then you need to build an outbound sales motion and have that working well also with your marketing machine. And so that's a huge change and one area that companies that are on that growth stage need to grow out. And I think mistake that I see there is just not having a clear strategy of who you're going to hire to do that, when, how, you just need to lay that out, have a plan, start to execute, and then adjust on what's working, what's not. And especially also like leverage your network, your investors, right? If you're trying to also go into a new vertical and get some of these lighthouse customers, then come to your investors and see, okay, who can you help me? Who's in your network? Sapphire, we cultivate a very strong CXO network across global 2000 companies who are all looking for what are the next exciting innovations in my sector that I could be using. But again, it's being thoughtful about how you're doing that scaling versus just going out there and letting things try to happen organically or experiment too much. Yeah, makes sense. I have two more questions for you. So one is on valuation. What are you seeing in terms of Series B valuations? What trends are you seeing? And how do you feel about the valuations for the companies that you're investing in? Yes. So I think it's it's not a surprise to anyone when you look back over 2021 that we just had this huge bubble kind of come up in the market and valuations, especially at series, series B or series C, but really across the board, we're much higher than we've seen versus historical averages. And then as at end of last year into this year in the public markets, we just saw things begin to correct and have continued there. So back to then like historical average levels. I think one of the things is as that happens in public markets, it has ramifications for the private markets. And that starts to then at that kind of go down later stage to earlier stage. So it first impact pre-IPO, then growth, early growth, Mm -hmm. series A, et cetera, and trickle down. And I think we're still seeing kind of the impacts of that unfold in Europe. I think part of it is a lot of companies have raised a significant portion of capital in the last 12 to 18 months. So they're not necessarily out in market right now raising because they they don't need to. They have the capital. That's definitely what we see in in our portfolio as well. And so I think we will it will take a bit more time 
to see how this all shakes out in terms of the ramifications into kind of series B land of what that actually means for valuations going forward. Some of these companies that raised at massive valuations are going to need to go down rounds in the next ones if they're not able to create the value to increase those multiples. I think one point there as well is it's important for CEOs to be thinking about also rounds ahead, right? And setting themselves up for success because again, coming back to Sapphire and our investment strategy, like we are looking to partner with these companies of consequence. And a lot of times that is being a, a public company, but it's how do you think about even at series B, are you setting yourself up for success for subsequent raises to be on that path? to being a public company. I think that's something that's important for CEOs to continue to be thoughtful about in this environment. I think this is so important. Heard this from like startups trying to figure out how they should strike that balance with evaluation and where they are. Do you have any rule of thumb or anything in terms of how companies that are looking for Series B round of funding should think about their valuations? We're constantly looking at what's happening in the public markets, right? And we have a capital markets team, and they're sending out weekly updates. So this for us is 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 critical because that's what where valuation really is rooted in data. And so I think, you know, we're, we will continue to see how that's adjusted. But I think for Series B, Series C founders, they may think, okay, being a public company is a long while away, but it also may not be, right? You may right. actually see really fast scaling and it just might be a few years. So I think it's also important for founders as they become into that later stage to be tracking and understanding how are similar companies to mine being valued in the public markets, because that is going to impact from a private markets perspective, the valuation in the current environment. Yeah. And then my last question, almost circling back to the beginning of our podcast and coming back to what you have accomplished and an advice for other women that are looking at the VC track is what does the work-life balance look like? And is that something that you feel works well for women to take on this career role? I do. I feel incredibly fortunate to be in VC as a career. I think it can be a job that can be all-consuming. And I think that comes back to innate curiosity, right? There's always more sectors to be learning about, always more CEOs to be talking to. You can always be spending more time with your portfolio companies. So of course, there's that side of it. But I think the other side is it's not a nine to five in the office job. You are traveling. You could be working very early in the morning, very late at night, which provides that flexibility. So I think for women thinking about VC as a long-term career, I actually think it's very positive in that respect. Yeah. And I can see that being an advantage. Okay. We've come to the formal end of the podcast, but I usually like to ask my guests a few questions at the end that are more fun. And I usually start with, what's your favorite book? Oh man, my, I grew up with a mother as a librarian. So books were like everywhere. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) everywhere in my house and I'm like a constantly reading I'm reading this book actually right now called the fearless organization I don't know if you can see it fearless organization that CEO actually gave to me and it's all about how do you create psychological safety in the workplace it's written by um 
an HB at Harvard Business School professor, and I'm really enjoying it. So very cool. For, but I feel like, yeah, books that have impact on me are on a weekly basis changing. <laughs> amazing, amazing that you find the time to read so much with your travel and with your career, with your work schedule. Cool. What about your favorite European city? I love Budapest. That's oh. for sure my my favorite European city. My grandmother is Hungarian and I spend a lot of time in Budapest with family. My best friend lived there for six years. And so I also just have very fond memories. Oh, nice. Is there like a must do thing? Like if anyone visits Budapest that you would recommend? Food. Yeah. <laughs> I think number one, if you haven't had Hungarian goulash, that's, that's my number one recommendation. Yeah. And speaking of Hungary, also had some incredible companies coming out of Hungary, which is really impressive. Definitely a lot of reasons to visit Hungary. Okay. A productivity tip or a productivity tool that you use to keep you on track? I think my number one productivity tool to keep me on track is pen and paper to-do list, which yeah. may be very old school, but I've just always found writing it down, crossing things off works the best for me. Yeah, I've heard that from actually a lot of entrepreneurs. So you're not the first. <laughs> and then my last question is a favorite quote, something that either you say to yourself or it doesn't have to be yours or it could be someone else's, but a favorite quote that you live by maybe. I think one that in my father says to me a lot is this too shall pass yeah and I think also when I think about entrepreneurial journey you have so many very high amazing moments you also have so many like low very low yeah. moments and I think just that mindset that there are going to be things that happen there's going to be change there's going to be really positive moments there's going to be really low moments but that you're going to get through all of this I think that kind of mindset and like that kind of mantra of this too shall pass is something that I feel like I try to keep front of mind. Cool. Thank you so much, Annalisa, for being on the show today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.